The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 1. So now we turn to the Gospel of Luke itself. Where would we be without the Gospel of Luke? Now, Luke retells, one of the things I want to emphasize this morning is that Luke is a reteller of stories. Uh, but he also tells some stories that nobody else tells. And these are stories that, and he's such a good storyteller, and he, and his stories are so uh, resonant with meaning and implications uh, that they stay with us. So his stories are the ones that, in a sense, leap out of the New Testament. The, good, the story of the Good Samaritan, the story of the prodigal son, the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, the Christmas story, the Christmas story. We wouldn't have Christmas without Luke. Try to make a Christmas story. Well, of course, our Christmas is a con, con, that we conflate uh, the infancy narratives in Matthew and Luke and create a Christmas story or a Christmas tradition uh, out of those two stories. But if we had only Matthews, we wouldn't have Christmas as we know it. And we would not have Mary as we, as the church, have understood Mary without the Gospel of, of Luke. So it's a tremendously rich gospel in terms of its contribution to Christian, the Christian imagination, Christian piety, and Christian sensibilities. Matthew and Luke give us stories of Jesus's conception, birth, and infancy. And Mark, the first evangelist, does not. The author of the Gospel of John gives us a cosmic kind of introduction uh, to, to Jesus and the meaning of his life. Uh, but Matthew and Luke give us the details of his birth. Now, we know, of course, that neither Matthew nor Luke knew any of the details of Jesus' conception, birth, and infancy. And so they are responding to a, a literary convention which is the life of an important person must begin with the story, usually a story of a miraculous uh, or distinctive birth and infancy. In other words, this, the significance of this person's life is already there uh, in their conception, birth, and infancy. And so Matthew and Luke start with that assumption and therefore they, they have to fill in the blanks. And they fill in the blanks by consulting Scripture, Scripture being the Jewish Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures. By and large, they, they fill in blanks by doing that. Uh, so we have a story. The question, as with so many other biblical texts, is, is this story true? And the answer is yes. There, this story tells the truth. And if we if our only understanding of truth is a narrow one that has to do with facts, then we would toss stories like this out and miss the truth of them. Uh, so it's a true story. It's not historiography. Okay, among other things, the infancy narrative in Luke is a kind of set of instructions about how to read the gospel. Uh, the gospel is a, a different sort of a thing, and we need to know how to how to approach it. And the infancy narrative in Luke is true also in Matthew. 
is the gospel in miniature. That's what Raymond Brown, one of the great biblical scholars of our time, called the infancy narratives, the gospel in miniature. The whole thing is there. The whole story is in the infancy narratives. And, and that's precisely because the evangelist didn't have anything to go on. So what he did is he wrote back into the infancy story the story of the gospel. In other words, <clears throat> the gospel was a story of what the Messiah was like in his conception and infancy. So it's the gospel itself. So it's a little version of the gospel. It's a kind of a, a, it's a kind of kind of a quick run through of the gospel, which prepares us for reading the gospel. The, go the gospel is a biblical literature in general, and the gospel particularly is the kind of thing that one can't read only once because. Only when you get to the end of it can you understand the beginning of it. So you have to get to the end and then come back and read it again in order to get it. And that's true every time you read it. So that's every time you get to the end, you, it, if you've really read it well, you, you, you say to yourself, aha, I should go back and read this again. Well, in order to read it for the first time, we have a little practice session, which is the infancy story. You run through the whole thing. The whole thing is there in miniature. And then you can begin the gospel. And I would say that the message of the... Well, I don't know what Luke had in mind, but here's how I would approach it. I would say, in order to get the most out of the gospel, particularly the gospel of Luke, we should follow what I think is an implied instruction in the infancy narrative. And that is to follow the example of Mary, which is as we go through the gospel, to bear these things in mind and ponder them in our hearts. You see, that's what Mary does. Every time something happens that she doesn't quite understand, she bears it in mind and ponders it in her heart. And that's the approach to the gospel. Whereas we moderns, we, we do all kinds of other things. We unleash literary analysis, you see, or philosophical analysis, or theological analysis. Uh, and these produce some pretty impressive results. But Luke suggests, I think, that we follow the example of Mary. Okay, we, we need to know a little bit about why Luke wrote the gospel. Luke is writing to an almost exclusively Gentile church, community, in Antioch, which is far removed from Jerusalem, and late in the first century, the members of this community were, were converted by Paul or their, or their forebears were converted by Paul and, and evangelists like Paul. They're in the Gentile world. They know very little about the Jewish origins of Christianity or they don't know as much as they might. And uh, Luke is writing to reinterpret Christianity for them. They're losing their sense of Christian identity, and they're losing touch with the Jewish roots of their tradition. Now, after the infancy narratives, Luke will not have a whole lot to say. He will not be quoting the, the Hebrew scriptures as often as, as Matthew, say, does. Nevertheless, in the first part of the gospel, in the infancy narratives, it's nothing but Hebrew scriptures. It's the, it's the uh, encapsulation of Hebrew scriptures. And I think Luke is doing this, among other things, 
among other reasons, because he wants to wants to lay down the debt that Christians have to the uh, Jewish tradition. As you know, one of the themes that we've had going on here for a few years is this theme of keeping faith and breaking ground. And I think of Luke in that regard because he he really is, as one scholar referred to him, he is the steward of tradition. And tradition is a is something quite unique. It's not traditionalism. A living tradition, it comes alive and becomes innovative and creative precisely as it tries to understand its past so that it's not the simple-minded sort of tradition versus creativity, which is, which is dim-witted, if I may say so. Real creativity always comes out of a pondering at a deeper level the tradition out of which one comes. So that's Luke. And Luke is insisting, Luke could have easily written a gospel that would have been simply a Gentile gospel. And as a matter of fact, Marcion, who is, uh, came later in the second century, Marcion uh, said we should just get rid of the Jewish scriptures because the God depicted there simply cannot be squared with the God uh, whom Jesus called Father. They just don't, they don't have the same profile, and therefore if we try to make them fit, we'll end up watering down the Christian revelation, which is the God of love. If we understand the scriptures anthropologically, we don't have to make that kind of radical choice. And had we made it, we would have lost a, a, the, the, uh, the appreciation of the Gospels that's now available to us because we can see uh, the way in which the self-revelation of God gradually broke in on us until it broke in decisively at the Christ event. Luke could have written a Gentile Gospel, but he chose to root it in the Hebrew tradition, the Jewish tradition. Um, and that's an important example for us. For some reason, this made me think of of uh, a little poem, six-line poem by Lewis Simpson. And it goes like this, and I'll read it to you and then tell you why it made me think of it. He says, There's no way out. You were born to waste your life. You were born to this middle-class life. As others before you were born to walk in procession to the temple singing. I'm very fond of that little poem because it's a, well, what should I say? If we cut ourselves off from tradition, that's what happens. You see, the gospel is a desacralizing force in our world. At the crucifixion, the veil of the temple is rent in two. The old sacral system is undermined and exposed. The whole sacrificial apparatus is compromised. So the gospel is a desacralizing force. What I tried to argue a year ago or so, we were doing a thing on, the, on the, the gift of self, and I tried to suggest that the unique historical vocation of Christianity is to, is to mediate that desacralization in such a way that it is accompanied by 
a heightening of religious sensibility, which seems like a contradiction in terms, to desacralize and heightened religious sensibilities at the same time. But I think that's the unique contribution of Christianity. Otherwise, what you have is a desacralization, which is nothing but secularization. And a secularization will sooner or later reconstitute the whole sacrificial system. Uh, it will seem at first like a complete break with it, but before long the guillotines will come out. You see, <laughs> these complete breaks you've got to watch out for. These complete breaks always end up going back to the primal scene in some fashion and reconstituting the whole sacrificial apparatus. The prologue to the Gospel of John, which is, which is a hymn, the prologue to Luke's Gospel is a story because Luke is, is a storyteller. He tells a story in order to help us understand how to listen to the stories he's going to tell. So I want to do the same thing. I want to tell two stories about storytelling before we start the gospel. And, the, and they both come from a collection of Hasidic stories collected by Martin Buber. The Hasidic movement was a, was a uh, 18th century movement of wandering rabbis in Eastern Europe, and the most important one, the central figure of all, was the Baal Shem Tov. And so this is almost all the stories in some way or another lead back to the story of the Baal Shem Tov. So it says here, so the story goes as follows. A rabbi whose grandfather had been a disciple of the Baal Shem was asked to tell a story. A story, he said, must be told in such a way that it constitutes help in itself. And he told the following story. Quote, My grandfather was lame. His grandfather was a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. My grandfather was lame. Once they asked him to tell a story about his teacher, the Baal Shem. And he related how the holy Baal Shem used to hop and dance while he prayed. My grandfather rose as he spoke, even though he was lame. And he was so swept away by his own story that he himself began to hop and dance to show how the master had done it. From that hour on, he was cured of his lameness. That's the way a story should be told, end quote. So a story is not just a story of something happened in the past. And this is very true of Luke, of course. The story, because Luke is the evangelist of the Holy Spirit, the story is a story of how the Holy Spirit worked in the past. And the trick is to tell the story or hear the story or read the story in such a way as to become available for the Holy Spirit's inspiration in the present. So the other story I would tell is, again, a story about stories. Another of the... Uh, Hasadim was the Majid of Mezrich. Uh, the the Majadim were again wandering itinerant preachers, and the Majid of Mezrich was uh, making a tour and giving and preaching and so on. And a woman came up to him who was barren. This will come up in the story in, in the infancy story here about barren women who have children. And she came up to him and she said, "I'm barren and uh, I would like to." I would like to have you bless me and pray to God that, that uh, I'd be able to have a child. So, And the Majid said to her, Well, let me tell you a story. My mother was barren. And the Baal Shem Tov was coming 
making his rounds, and my mother heard that he was making his rounds. So she went to where he was preaching, and he had already gone to the next village. So she followed him on foot to the next village, and when she got there, he had already gone to the next village. So she followed him to the next village, and when she finally caught up with him, she said to him, I'm barren. I cannot have a child. I want, to, I want you to bless me and pray to God that I may have a child, and I would like to do whatever I could to, to uh, make myself worthy of such a blessing. And the Balshem said, well, do you have any treasure that you would like to give to the Lord? She said, well, I'm very poor. I don't have anything. I have one treasure that my mother gave to me, which is a Katinka cape, and that's all I have, but I would be happy to give that. And the Balshem says, that'll be fine. So she went back from village to village, back to her village, and she got her Katinka and made this trek again, village to village to village, finally caught up with the Balshem, and she presented him with this Katinka. And the, and the, and the Majid of Mezrich, who's telling this story, says to the woman who asked him about this, he says to her, nine months later, I was born. That was the story of my mother. Nine months later, I was born. And the woman in front of him said, ah, I too have a Katinka, which I would be pleased to offer. And he says, no, that won't do, because you heard the story, and my mother had no story to go by. So that's a story about how we have stories, but we they are always stories about how the Spirit has worked. But when we turn and look into the future, those we can't just replicate those stories. They are stories about how the Spirit has worked to, that will inspire us to trust, but not to replicate. So we both have a story and don't have a story. See, we're in the midst of a story. When the angel appeared to Mary, she had no idea. You see, that was precisely the power of her when she says, let it be done unto me according to your word. That's precisely the power of that. She did not know what, the, what she was signing on for. You see. So... So anyway, that's a, that's a couple of stories about how to read stories. Now, I want to turn to the stories of, of, of Luke, ones with which he begins his gospel. And I'm not going to go into detail. These things, volumes have been produced on these, these first few little stories, and so we're not going to do great uh, detailed work with them. Just to see the structure, first of all. There's a diptych which is Luke uses the, the conception and birth of John the Baptist, the conception and birth of Jesus as a diptych. Now, there's a tremendous asymmetry in this diptych, uh, and that's precisely the point of it. Uh, but what we see is we see the Spirit uh, moving into the world and miraculous things happening. And so the first thing we get is the parents of John the Baptist, Zechariah, a priest, and his wife Elizabeth, who is from the tribe of Aaron. In other words, she's she. They have they have uh, religious credentials. They're old, and Elizabeth is barren. So they have no children, and Zechariah. It's he's chosen by lot to go into the holy of holies, and while in the holy of holies, an angel appears to him, and says. First of all, he says to him, do not be afraid. Now, this is a refrain that 
is is in Luke when age when angels appear the first thing they say is do not be afraid now that doesn't that seems like a natural thing for an angel to say except we have to understand this is this we have to see the backdrop the backdrop is religious terror see? when something really religious occurs it it is suffused with a sense of terror and here we have God breaking in or the messengers of God breaking in with a f message right away don't be afraid there's no need to be afraid uh, which would certainly have been news to archaic religion generally because archaic religion generally was suffused with holy terror so these these uh, angels appear and they say don't be afraid your wife Elizabeth will bear a son now this this is an old story we it's it's like the story I told you we both have a story and we don't have a story Zechariah knew probably word for word the story of Abraham and Sarah which is exactly the same story you see that Abraham was old Sarah was barren and old and Abraham is told that he's going to have a son and Abraham couldn't believe it how could that be he laughed so did Sarah so Zechariah says how can that be and because he didn't believe he's made mute he can't speak until the child is born and named Okay, so that's all. A miraculous birth or miraculous conception. A woman who's too old to bear children and at the same and also barren, now she has a child. She's bearing a child. In the sixth month of the text goes on, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel, Gabriel, same angel, appears to Mary a virgin in uh, betrothed to a man named Joseph and he came to her and he said the Lord is with you do not be afraid do not be afraid same message same refrain you're going to conceive and have a son she's a virgin now this is even more powerful you see she's Elizabeth is too old and barren and Mary who's 14 or 15 and a virgin now she's going to have a son what are we to make this that Mary is a virgin I would say this it reminds me of the in the early verses of Dante's Paradiso he says something to the effect that if you have eaten of the bread of angels which means the Eucharist upon Panis Angelicus. If you have it, eaten of the bread of angels, then go ahead and read what I've written here. If you haven't, don't bother because you're not going to get it. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, the bread, by bread of angels, he means the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I think what he means by that, or at least what it means to me when I read it, is that if the idea of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is something that you simply can't, you can't get your mind around, there's not a chance in the world you're going to get your mind around the paradiso. You see? You might as well wait until you can. 
if there's if the if the mystery of that is a stumbling block then there is a place beyond which you cannot go what does it mean that mary was a virgin at the very least it means the following it means that there's that no attempt to account for the meaning of Jesus' life can succeed in doing so without taking into consideration divine intervention. So I would say, at the very least, that's what the notion of the virgin birth means. It means if, as a matter of course, the idea of God intervening in such a way, if that's inconceivable to you, I suppose that's a pun, if that's inconceivable to you, then there are aspects of the Christian mystery that are out of your range. Okay, so then there's this visitation between, so we have the two, two conceptions. Now we bring them together, Luke brings them together. Mary goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. And when she, well, you know this story, when, she, when uh, she's greeted, the child in Elizabeth's womb uh, stirs, and Elizabeth greets Mary in a very deferential way. So this is not really the meeting of Elizabeth and Mary. This is really the first meeting of John and Jesus. And they have to, there's a surrogate meeting of John and Jesus. And so Elizabeth speaks for John, Mary speaks for Jesus. And speaking for John, Elizabeth says, Elizabeth bows and defers to Jesus. So this is where the, the diptych becomes asymmetrical because clearly John is the forerunner and prepares the way for Jesus. And it's here that, G that Mary utters this canticle which is been for a long time called the Magnificat because of the Latin first word in the Latin version of it. And this, uh, and, and I want to focus a little bit on this canticle. It's it's a collage of Old Testament sensibilities. The central thread of which is the canticle or prayer of Hannah in First Samuel. Hannah had been barren, and she prayed that her barrenness would be overcome, and. Her prayer was granted, and she gave birth to Samuel, who was the prophet uh, who uh, played such a central role uh, in, uh, in the story of, uh, of Israel. The Magnificat of Mary is a, is, a, is a filling in or a fleshing out of the Song of Hannah in the same way that the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is a filling in and fleshing out of the story of Abraham and Sarah. It's a song of praise which summarizes the whole Old Testament. Now, we tend to think in our world that if, you're, if something new is going to come into the world, then you've got to get rid of these old ideas, you see. We've got, we got to let them go. We've got to think for ourselves, do something original, you know. And here we have the, the woman who is the vehicle or the vessel for the newest thing ever. And she's nothing but the incarnation of the tradition. I was reading something from a scholar who wrote in the 
at the end of the 19th century. His name was Thomas Dehaney Bernard. And something this man, Thomas Dehaney Bernard, said really struck me. He says the following. Do we not all know how sentences from the Bible or the liturgy glide into our prayers and offer their unsought aid to express kindred feelings of our own? He's explaining the way in which Mary, the Lucan Mary, spontaneously erupts with, these, with this glorious uh, avalanche of themes out of, that, that summarize the whole Hebrew experience, the whole Jewish experience. She just spontaneously just flows. I mean, it's Luke who's a literary genius, no doubt, but in terms of the story, that's what's amazing. And so this scholar says, do we not all know how sentences from the Bible or the liturgy glide into our prayers and offer their unsought aid to express kindred feelings of our own? And I read that sentence and I thought, do we really? I mean, do, do sentences from the Bible and the liturgy glide into our prayers and offer their unsought aid to express kindred feelings of our own? He's talking about something that's not so true anymore. You see what I mean? He says, so here, na namely the Magnificat, so here the words as well as the thoughts are those of a high-souled Hebrew maiden of devout and meditative habit whose mind has taken the tone of the scriptures in which she has been nurtured. We feel the breath of the prophets. We catch the echoes of the Psalms. We recognize most distinctly the vivid reminiscences of the Song of Hannah. End quote. Now, what does it mean to, to when he says the mind has taken the tone of the scriptures in which she has been nurtured? What is the corollary for that in our world? And today, what would we erupt with? You know what I mean? Would we erupt with the Magnificat? Or would we erupt with some TV commercial? You know what I mean? What, what is, what's the forming, what is forming us? And whatever it is, it's anything but this because we have, we believe as Luke did not that creativity is other than being steeped in the tradition. Okay, here's what I want to talk about. The birth of Jesus. We're totally familiar with the story, but there are aspects that we need to focus on a little more. In those days, a decree from the Emperor Augustus went out to all the world that all the world should be registered or census should be taken. This kind of census was taken here and there, but it, but there probably no such one like this one. Nevertheless, Luke is using it to make another contrast. Here you have at the center of the world, the center of the known world, Rome, the power, you have the emperor whose title was son of God because he was the adopted son of Julius Caesar who had been deified. So Augustus was the son of God and the, acting as the son of God, he declared that, he, he sh that, that his whole empire should be counted, 
should be measured. He wants, so this is an act of control, calculation, uh, power, etc., coming out from the source of everything, Rome. Very impressive, you see. And what it does is it causes Joseph to go back to this little town, which is nowhere. See, Bethlehem, Nazareth is nowhere. Bethlehem is totally nowhere. And there he goes to this little town to register. And while he's there, Mary gives birth. So you have this tremendous juxtaposition of all this Roman power and this little, absolutely, these, these two figures, Mary and Joseph, about Joseph we hear almost nothing in Luke's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, the, the, the infancy story focuses on Joseph. Joseph gets the dream, you know, Joseph... Uh, etc. So Joseph is the key figure in Matthew's gospel, but in Luke's gospel, we hear almost nothing about it. So it's all about Mary. Nevertheless, you have these two simple people who go to this out-of-the-way place, and there the Savior of the world is born. Compare that to Augustus Caesar. But not only is the Savior of the world born there, but in some a pretty lowly situation. And that's the point of this little story. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver a child. And she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling clothes or in bands of cloth. I'll talk about that in a second. And laid him in a manger, for there was no place for them. There's no room in the inn. This is the gospel in miniature. There are three things here about the birth that tell us everything about the gospel. There's no room in the inn. The, the birds of the air have their nests. The foxes have their lairs. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's no room in the inn. Or in the gospel of the prologue, the Gospel of John, he came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. There's no room in the inn. It's in the nature of the Messiah that he is the one left out. He's always the one left out. He's the stone the builders rejected. So the fact that there's no room in the inn is not incidental. It's absolutely essential to the story. This is what the Messiah is. You see, there's no room in Rome, so go to Israel. There's no room in Israel, so go to Nazareth. There's no room in Nazareth, go to Bethlehem. There's no room in, in the inn. Go out to the shed where the animals are, you see. Out, 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 out. No room, no room, no room. Always the one left out. The Messiah is the one left out. The real truth breaks in on you when you recognize the one left out, the stone the builders rejected. And that becomes the cornerstone. All of that's there in the fact that there's no room in the end. I'll come back to the other two aspects here via the story of the shepherds. Who gets wind of this? This thing that's happening out there in nowhere. Who gets wind of this? The shepherds. Now, we have to shake free of some of our Chris, Christmas piety. These shepherds are not... This is not some nice little pastoral scene where the, the lambs are buying and so on and so forth. Shepherds in, in the first century represented something like bikers. It was just as bad as you could get. They were absolutely, they were the unwashed, unscrupulous, 
Anytime they came to town, everybody locked their doors. You see, everybody checked the silverware. Shepherds were the worst. They were, they couldn't be, and this was this this was how they were seen socially in the first century. They'd simply they were like gypsies, you see, or they had that kind of social mark on them. So they were the worst of the worst in terms of social status. Who gets wind of the birth of the Messiah? The shepherds. Luke is the, the gospel that really turns the social order on its head. Luke is all, always interested in the women, in the outcast, in those shunned by society. And he, he always goes there, you see. And so the shepherds, the angels go, the angel appears to the shepherd and says to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, the refrain. And then the angel says, a Savior is born, and this will be a sign for you. So this is Luke's way of underscoring a couple of things. Here's the sign. It's very important. When Luke says sign, we say, He's making a point not just to the shepherds but to us. The sign is the child is wrapped in swaddling clothes, sign number one. Sign number two, lying in a manger. So we, so that's echoed from the previous story. Wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now this is the gospel in miniature. What does that tell us? Swaddling clothes, the what it literally says is strips of bands of cloth. And these swaddling clothes were a newborn infant was swaddled. The limbs and torso of a newborn infant were wrapped so as to ensure that the limbs would grow straight. So this is a way of forming the child. The swaddling clothes were a way of shaping the child forming the child. And I would suggest to you that what the deeper implication of swaddling clothes is culture. That is to say, here is a child who's not... When we say, uh, when we say uh, Jesus takes on uh, human form, takes on fleshly existence and so on, is a human like other humans? That's true, obviously. But we have to also see what's in this story, which is that he's, he's inculturated. I think what swaddling clothes means is that this child is shaped by culture, not just by nature. You see? He is formed by a process which is a cultural process. So he's like Mary in the Magnificat, who suddenly she's thinking thoughts that are not... You know, we have these. That we, I only want to think my thoughts. God save me, you know. But Mary thinks thoughts that come out of this rich, deep tradition. And so does Jesus. Jesus is a, is a product of a culture. He's a product of swaddling clothes. And there's no apology for it. You see, in other words, Mary wouldn't look over to Joseph and say, well, maybe we better let him decide for himself. You see what I mean? Let's not cram anything down his throat, you know. This is the way we think, because we think somehow that, a, that the blank slate 
is preferable, you see, let, let, listen. let him watch six hours of television a day and then when he's 18, he can decide if he wants to become a Presbyterian or a Buddhist. You see? Or a nihilist. Or a serial killer. I mean, anyway, <laughs> we're talking about a world that's not like ours, in which nobody apologizes for that. And Jesus himself is swaddled. He's, he's enculturated. And I think that's how he's recognized. He comes up out of that culture. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is he's lying in a manger. And again, we have to shake off our, our Christmas pieties here a little bit. The manger is a feeding trough. It's where the animals go to eat. Now, why did Luke do that? Why did Luke put Jesus in an eating place? You see? If you go to the end of the gospel, the two disciples walking to Emmaus, Jesus, the, the risen Jesus walking beside them, they don't recognize him. They recognize him in the breaking of the bread. This is the gospel in miniature. Where do you find him? The shepherds, where do you find him? In an eating place. He's swaddled, he's shaped by his culture. And he's in an eating place. So the shepherds go to the manger and they tell Mary and Joseph all that they have been told by the angel. And then it says, Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. Uh, the word ponder here is... Uh, the word for interpret, but the important word is heart. She pondered them in her heart. So I would ask you this. What's the difference between pondering them in our head and pondering them in our heart? Most of us ponder them in our head. And she pondered them in her heart. It's a huge difference. <laughs> There's something she simply pondered them in her heart. The gospel is an epistemological emancipation from superstition. But it's not a recipe for enlightenment rationalism. Because enlightenment rationalism is just the modern superstition. And it's, it, it, it's a mental narrowing and so we're, it's very, we're very lucky to, that the gospel stands there, the rock in the road, filled with stories of miracles and inscrutable things because it's a reminder that we live in a world of superstition. It just happens to be enlightenment rationalist superstition. If we say... Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. We assume, well, someday, later on, after she's done a considerable amount of this pondering, she'll have figured it out and she can stop pondering. But that's not the way it works. There is no, there is no conclusion to that pondering. That's always there. It's, 
it's what one does with these mysteries. It isn't pondering as a way you get to a certain uh, factual situation which then relieves you of having to ponder anymore. Pondering is a way of life. Pondering in the heart is a way of life. It's, it's synonymous with faith. So let me just mention the last couple of things here. Jesus is presented, the child Jesus is presented in the temple, which is according to Scripture. And when they were there, Simeon, who was a righteous and devout man, who had been informed by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he saw the Messiah, recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and he took him in his arms and praised God and delivered himself of this little canticle, which is called now Nunc Dimittis because of the Latin, the, the Latin words with which it begins, the Latin translation. He says, Master, now you can dismiss your servant in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now, this in a way brings to a conclusion this whole Old Testament orchestration of Luke. We All of these figures are very Old Testament-like figures. And then we get to Simeon, who, in a sense, concludes all that by saying, now you can dis dismiss your servant, speaking, in a sense, for the, for the whole tradition. Now, so you have the recovery of the tradition, and here then an act of deference with respect to the fulfillment of it. So Simeon announces, as a representative of the whole Old Testament tradition, the whole Jewish tradition, that here in this child, the whole tradition is summed up and brought to completion. The Messiah uh, is now among us. And then Simeon says to Mary, and I want to think about this a little bit. He says, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be rejected or contradicted so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Now, people all the time talk about the evolution of consciousness, and I don't buy it myself. But there is something happening. There is an epistemological revolution underway. The question is, what, what is its locus? What is its driving force? Inner thoughts that are not revealed are going to be revealed by the fact that he is rejected. Now, just after the death of Jesus and the crucifixion in Luke, it says the people who gathered saw what had happened. They beat their breasts and went home. Suddenly, they're aware of something that they weren't aware of before about themselves, and they beat their breasts. It breaks in on them. Because he is rejected, he will reveal inner thoughts. Something is revealed because he is rejected, which is, has to do with, you know the word conscience and the word consciousness are the same word. So that the real evolution of consciousness has to do with the workings of conscience. 
when the myth that justifies our sinfulness is shattered, our sinfulness becomes a problem. The, the business of myth is to keep it from becoming a problem. And when the myth is shattered, it becomes a problem. In a, in a way, it's the beginning of interiority. Because we have an we have a we we can see it we can see our own self from outside in a way. Someplace in Gerard's work, he talks about I think it's in things hidden. He talks about and this is in Luke too, of course. Jesus is, says or prays for his persecutors, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Gerard says that's the first and most radical and decisive definition of the unconscious. They know not what they do. They are completely caught up in it. But about five verses later, it says, when they saw Theoria, what had happened, they went home beating their breasts. Suddenly, that epistemological handicap was removed, and the, res and the, and the immediate effect of that removal was a pang of conscience and the beginning of consciousness. One last thing, and that is if the infancy narrative is the gospel in miniature, it has to tell the whole story. So we have uh, Jesus and his family return to Nazareth, and then there's a little story about uh, the boy Jesus in the temple, uh, which goes as follows. Every year's parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when Jesus was 12 years old, he went up, as usual, to the festival with them. Now, the 12 years old, that's the bar mitzvah. That's when he becomes an adult, a male, in the, uh, able to participate fully in a Jewish religious life. And so he goes to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. Now, Luke is very interested in geography. He uses it at, to tell the story in the gospel. And Jesus' journey to Jerusalem is very dramatic in the gospel itself. And so we have a preliminary journey to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem for the festival. Jer the Passover festival is over. The feast of Passover is over. And they start to go home. Jesus stayed behind. His parents did not know it, assuming he was in the group of travelers. They went a day's journey. They started to look for him among their relatives and friends. They did not find him. And they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. What is this? This is a story about going to Jerusalem for the Passover, coming away and finding he's not with us anymore and wondering, where is he? See, what is this? It's perfectly clear in the next verse. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple. This is marvelous. See, it's a story about the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's a little preliminary. It's the, it's the overture. So that when we get to the journey to Jerusalem, we'll remember, hey, this is, we, we know something about going up to Jerusalem. You come away. You're, you're anxious. He's not with you. What do you do? And at the end of the gospel, Jesus says, uh, you know, I'll meet you in Jerusalem. We'll start from Jerusalem. Gather in Jerusalem. Uh, and then from there, go out to the ends of the earth. That's the second volume of Luke's work is Acts, where they go from Jerusalem to Rome, which is where it spreads to the ends of the earth. 
When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Why did you treat us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And he said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand what he said to them. He went down with them, came to Nazareth, and was obedient to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So it's a rehearsal of the Easter story, the Passion story and the Easter story. And it ends on the great theme of the, of the infancy narrative in Luke, which is to ponder these things in one's heart. Chapter 3 begins where the first gospel, Gospel of Mark, begins, which is with the arrival of John the Baptist. And this really is, in fact, the first, the first uh, historical event associated with the, the life of Jesus that, that we know about. And we know that it actually happened for all kinds of reasons, not the least of which is that John the Baptist represented a little bit of an embarrassment for the Christ, first Christians and so they definitely would not have invented him because uh, Jesus, now the, we'll see how Luke deals with this. Uh, Jesus clearly became what looked for all the world like a disciple of John's, which would have been a little bit awkward for later Christians as they tried to sort things out. And it's also clear that uh, Jesus grew beyond what John was doing and what he learned from John. And so the, the Christians, I think, were right to see in retrospect that John was a precursor rather than a, than a teacher and initiator of what Jesus was uh, going to do with his life. But nevertheless, there was this awkward situation of Jesus, in a sense, um, uh, submitting to John in, in the baptism at the Jordan. So Luke has a special way of dealing with this in many respects it's just like Mark and Matthew but then he changes it somewhat first of all Luke sets things more in a historical perspective so he tells us at the beginning who was emperor who was governor of Judea uh, who was ruler of Galilee and so on who was who the high priest were he locates things so he writes he has in part the style of, uh, of uh, a, a historiographer so he begins with that, and then he says, at that time, now that he's located it in time, he says, uh, John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, was in the wilderness. He came out of the wilderness and began preaching in the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I suppose what I'd really want to think about today is the forgiveness of sins, what that means. Now, John preaches the f baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins with a tremendous urgency. Uh, as John sees it, time is running out. And Jesus uh, was attracted to John perhaps for this very reason, the sense that time was running out, that uh, f sins had to be forgiven. Now, we, the first Christians, tended to interpret that in terms of an uh, of a, uh, imminent second coming or something like that. Uh, 
some exegetes uh, think that Jesus had such ideas. I, I, I'm not so sure about that. I, I, I think that is uh, questionable. Nevertheless, the, the idea that there's some urgency in the forgiveness of sins is, uh, is I think, apropos. Luke defines John or describes John in terms of passages from Isaiah, which is, which is what all the, the uh, synoptic gospel writers do. He says he was preaching as it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah, quote, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be laid low. Now, the, think of this urgency of forgiving sins. There are two things in this description of John that I think underscore the urgency. First is this metaphor here. The valleys will be filled and the mountains will be laid low. A leveling process is going to take place. Now, the old hierarchical order was a hierarchical order sustained. It was the old sacred system. It was the old order at the heart of which was sacred violence. And the announcement, the prophetic announcement, that that whole sacred hierarchy, this, by the way, we shouldn't read this to mean that that our world is not hierarchical. Our world is hierarchical. Some things are more important than others. There is a, there is a, a natural hierarchy in things. There are orders of reality that are less or more significant than other orders of reality. So there is a hierarchy in, in life and in the world. But the old artificial structures of sacred hierarchy are being destroyed in our world as we sit here this morning. And most of them have already been destroyed. And it's just a matter of watching them further collapse. So we're in a, we're in a world that is rapidly desacralizing and has been for a long, long time. And as... As Christians see it, you can see the beginning of this desacralizing happening in the in the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, announcing it in this passage. The valleys will be lifted and the mountains will be laid low. The old sacred hierarchy will be leveled. So it begins a long time ago. It begins decisively, as Christians see it, at the crucifixion, which is the definitive expose of the whole uh, system of sacred violence on which this hierarchy depends. And so at the death of Jesus, the, the veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. The whole structure is exposed and uh, undermined. So we're living in a world which is, and this, that's the, if you haven't read the book, there it is in two sentences. Uh, that's the world we're living in. Now the question is, will we, how are we going to deal with the desacralization of the world? The Christian vocation, as I see it, is to mediate that desacralization in such a way that our religious sensibilities are heightened and that we become more religious people, to move from the old sacred system to a world that's not simply secularized because a secularized world will not stay secularized. You can bet on that. It will invent forms of the old primitive sacred in exactly the way that the French Revolution rolled out the guillotine uh, right as it was celebrating its emancipation from the old system of religious uh, hierarchy. So the, the point is, what John is announcing here is something is happening in our world, and the urgency with which he's announcing this need for forgiveness, I think, must be 
we have to relate it to the fact that it's the backdrop for this urgent need for forgiveness is the leveling of all uh, sacred hierarchies. And part and parcel of that is his message, which he immediately begins, you know, John's message was doom and gloom. John's message was, you've got to be forgiven, but he, uh, he started with a message of condemnation. He wanted, he wanted to uh, remind people of how, of how wrong they were. And so his message is brood of vipers, condemnation, uh, woe to you, and so on and so forth. But then he says to the faithful Jews who had come to hear him, these were the people who were, who were the most religious uh, of his people, they come, they come to hear him, and he says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our ancestor, for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. In the same way that the second Isaiah passage announces that the old hierarchy will be leveled, this announces that the old ethnocentric aspect of the religious system will cease to exist. We can no longer cling to our tribalism, that something universal is going to break in. And, and to the extent that we cling to something less than universal, uh, will be our, our, our religious structures will be undermined. So this is also Luke, because Luke is writing his gospel to a Gentile community who, 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 have, who cannot claim Abraham for their ancestor. And it's a reassurance to them that their inability to make that claim in no way deprives them of their Christian identity. And this is a, this is a preliminary announcement of that fact. Okay, so then John preaches. Now, John preaches in a very Lucan way because Luke is very concerned about social justice. Luke is the social justice gospel. And so when John preaches in Luke, people ask him, what do we do? And he says, if you have two, coat, uh, two coats, you must uh, share with someone who has none. Uh, if you have food and someone else has none, you must share it with them. Uh, tax collectors come to him and he advises them about social justice. Soldiers come to him and he advises them about uh, mercy and so on. And then they ask him if he's the Messiah. Now this is important because right at the beginning, the evangelists, Luke included, want to set that issue aside. They want to get rid of that issue. Is because in the first century there were communities that were Joanine uh, jo communities that still regarded John as the Messiah or as the most important prophet, as more important than Jesus. So there was, there were conflicting claims, and the Christians were trying to make the point that that John was not the Messiah. So here, John himself says, "I'm not the Messiah. Another will come." Uh, whose uh, sandal straps I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit, whereas I baptize with water. And then he uses this metaphor referring to the one to come, that his winnowing fan is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is one of those uh, stark kind of judgment metaphor and we tend to either take it literally well, I say we Christians historically have uh, tended to take it literally and moralistically 
and other Christians have tended to uh, ignore it completely. And I think we've got to do something other than either one of those. Uh, when we talked about this metaphor of the wheat and the chaff in earlier sessions, we were talking about the question of ontology, which I want to bring back into our discussion of Luke. Ontology just means the nature of being. And my touchstones for thinking about ontology are, and all of you will groan because I've said this so often, but there are these two passages from two uh, French thinkers, one Henri de Lubac who speaks of our lack of ontological density. He speaks of the modern problem, the modern crisis, what we would call the crisis of the psychological crisis or socio-psychological crisis. De Lubac would call the spiritual crisis, which is fundamentally an ontological crisis, which is the diminishing of our ontological density. And the uh, existentialist philosopher Gabriel Marcel speaks of the same thing in terms of the loss of ontological moorings. And so we're in a world where I think, I think those two assessments are absolutely appropriate. We've lost our ontological moorings, and as a result, we are losing our ontological density. And uh, all kinds of social and psychological distresses are related to that. So I, I, brought, that to in, uh, I brought that to bear on this um, metaphor of the wheat and the chaff, because the metaphor is the, the, the uh, winnowing fan is something that just uh, throws the wheat and the chaff up into the air in a stiff breeze, and the chaff is blown away, and, uh, and then the wheat is taken into the granary. And so the, so the idea of the separating the wheat and the chaff is that there, there is a separation that takes place that has to do with density, that has to do with gravitas, that has to do with weight. And so we shouldn't, I think, take this morally, although it's perfectly true that a morally disreputable life will uh, have profound and unlimited consequences. We shouldn't be so liberal and nice as to uh, ignore that fact. Uh, on the other hand, I think it's probably better to see this question in terms of ontology. In other words, is there something at stake? Can I make a profound enough mistake that it will have consequences severe enough to have produced symbolic metaphors like everlasting fire, etc., etc. In other words, I'm not appealing to those as in any literalistic way, but uh, is it otherwise, if nothing's at stake, what are we doing here? You see what I mean? If it's just a matter of everything is everything and everything's taken care of in the end, you know, then nothing's at stake. To, to know that the, that the God that Jesus puts us in touch with is, a, is an infinitely merciful and loving and forgiving God is not, the, is not to say that there's nothing at stake. So I just underscore that for a second because I think, it, I think the gospel begins by saying there's an urgency the old order is going to be undermined. The business of forgiveness 
is urgent and something is at stake, something very dear is at stake, which uh, could mean everything. Well, now, so then we have what Luke does with John, which is he gets him out of the way as quickly as possible. Uh, and this takes a long time in the other Gospels, but here we have, uh, so John is preaching these, is preaching the good news, but Herod, the ruler, John had rebuked him because of his uh, mar marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done. So Herod put John in prison. So that conveniently gets him out of the way. And then we have the baptism of Jesus. Now, you see it's out of order because Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. But in the order in which Luke puts it, John conveniently exits the scene. And then we have a baptism that is the, is, is the strangest one in the Gospels. It, it goes like this. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, this is the, almost as though it's been thrown in as an afterthought. Everybody was baptized. Oh yeah, well Jesus was baptized too. And Jesus was praying. The heaven opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So, no John in this baptism scene. And Jesus, whose baptism is, it's as though we look away and we look back and he comes, he's coming up out of the Jordan. We don't see the actual thing. And then the Holy Spirit does not descend, the voice from on high does not speak at that moment. It speaks when he goes to pray, which I think is maybe even in this respect probably closer to the, I mean, who knows? Uh, but it, but this, he hears this voice while at prayer, which I think has some sort of historical verisimilitude to it. And then it's at this point that, Ma that Luke brings in the genealogy. Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy, but Luke waits until he, uh, the voice from heaven says, you are my beloved son. And at that point, Luke says, well, now let's talk of genealogy here because we've just had the heavenly voice say, you're my son. And then the question is, whose son is this? Who, and so he begins, Jesus was 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, parentheses, as was thought, of Joseph, who was son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. The whole thing goes back, 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 back until very, at the very end of the genealogy, son of Adam, son of God. Son of Adam, Son of God. There you have the two. And that's why the genealogy is put off until after he hears the voice from on high. Uh, and we have this, the most ancient version of the creed, which is that he's human and divine.